Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. In the baptism of Jesus Christ, there is a marvelous response from God the Father towards Christ at the waters of baptism. And I want to encourage you with that response. If you are one that has been baptized and you have really meant business with the kingdom of God, you've really sought to lay down your life and utterly obey God, and you've sought to have a thorough consecration before God, in the entirety of your being, you want to be set apart for God. In a way, that's what the waters of baptism represent. That is, I am done with life as usual. I am done with my own will. I am done with my way. I am done with my glory. I want to cross over into the realm of God, into the kingdom of God. And through the waters of baptism, in a way, you're laying down yourself to cross over into a brand new territory with your Lord. If you're that person that's been going hard after God, I trust today's message will encourage you that inasmuch as the Father responded to Jesus' baptism, to Jesus' consecration, to His radical obedience, you should expect the Father to likewise respond to your consecration. If you can follow along with me from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 13, I want to highlight those three responses for you. It says here that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. There was really no need for Jesus to be baptized. Uh, He was sinless. He was the Son of God. And he who knew no sin had no need of a baptism of repentance. As John was crying out on the wilderness, he was really cutting to the core of people with his message. And he was pleading with them to repent. That is, stop playing games with God. Come to the waters of baptism and turn. Turn in your actions. Turn in your lifestyle. Turn in the way you think. Turn in your understanding. And come through this watery grave to the other side, prepared for the kingdom of the heavens. Jesus did not need to really undergo baptism as a kind of a a dealing with his sin. Jesus got baptized through the principle not of repentance, but through the principle of identification. He who knew no sin submitted himself to this ordinance of baptism so that he can identify with those that are sinners, those that are broken, those that are aching for the reality of God. He identified himself, and he showed us in a way, baptism 
not just as an issue of ceremonial washing or a, an issue of repentance, but baptism as an issue of identification. And this is sort of the way Paul explains it in his descriptions of baptism. Don't you know that you likewise identified with Christ in his burial and in his resurrection? Um, I was not on the tomb of Christ. I didn't die. Um, I didn't really get resurrected. I mean, I'm living here in the 21st century. But when Paul expounds the spiritual reality of baptism, he uses the same principle, the principle of identification. That is, by faith, I identify with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And so here, Jesus is not repenting really for anything. He is identifying with all of those who want to cross over into the kingdom of the heavens. He comes down to John to be baptized, and John says to him, No, 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 you can't do this. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said to him, Permit this for now, for it is fitting in order to fulfill all righteousness. In a way, John, we have to do this. This is the right thing to do. This is God's will. You've been preparing my people for the kingdom of the heavens, and I want to enter into that. This is the right thing. This is righteousness. And um, John then said, okay. It says here in verse 16 that when Jesus was baptized, when he came up out of the water, it says that the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And furthermore, a voice came out of the heavens and it said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And there you have it. Christ, he humbles himself. He empties himself. That's really what baptism is about. It's, it's, it's you lay down the self-life, the ego life, the striving life. And in a way, as a person is buried, the waters represent you being laid down. You're being buried and coming up out of the waters. It represents resurrection. And so Christ, in a way, lays himself down. He who knew no sin showed us humility, obedience, and real intense consecration. And perhaps that is you. Perhaps you likewise have come to the waters of baptism. And if you've not come to the waters of baptism with a penitent, remorseful, broken heart, aching for the reality of God of baptism for you, has just been a kind of a ceremony where maybe you join a kind of a congregation or baptism is maybe just a, you know, a place where you get your name, then I want to encourage you to consider baptism. John the baptizer prepared people through this immersion experience and he brought them into reality with, the, with just the issues of their own heart. And he called for repentance. And I would encourage you, if you've never been baptized, consider it. Study it. 
and pray to the Lord to teach you what this is all about. But if you've been baptized and you've really meant business with God, then perhaps the Father wants to do the three things that He did for Christ, likewise for you. Number one, when Christ came up out of the water, it says that the heavens were opened to him. I would love to know exactly what that looked like. I, I cannot speak to that. In all of the pictures we have, it's mostly that of just a cloud parting. But, but I think it's so much more than that. I want to submit to you, when, when the heavens opened up, it's as though the realm of God, the heavenly reality of God, broke in to the here and the now. After all, John the baptizer had been telling people, repent, the kingdom of the heavens, not a geopolitical kingdom, but a, a kingdom from another realm, a kingdom that is above the natural realm, is about to break in. And then there, in Christ's baptism, heaven breaks in. In a way, heaven touches down into the realm of time and space. So it, it has to be more than just clouds parting. It's as though a, a door is formed, a, a gap is formed, a, a gateway is formed between the realm of God, which is the realm of the Spirit, and the realm of man, which is the realm of the flesh, uh, the realm of time and, and space. And what happens there is that the Father, through that gap, through that gateway, releases the Spirit. And through that gateway, the Father would speak to His Son. Can I submit to you that if you are really about the business of your Father in the heavens, and your consecration is thorough and ongoingly thorough, then you can expect God's realm to open up over you. That is, from God's realm, there can be an interaction with you. There can be a partnership with you. It, this, is, this is where the mystical and the here and now coalesce. And this happens here at the baptism of Christ. Before I expound this a little bit more, I want to give you just a reference from pagan culture and pagan history. You, you may know this, that Halloween is actually that time when the ancients believed that the realm of the dead and, and the, the natural realm in which they lived, that veil that separated those two realms, they believed on October the 31st, that realm was so thin that you could hear into the other realm. You could, you could almost like see the departed, and you could communicate and interact with, with dead spirits and your ancestors in that realm. And so that's 
really the the springboard for the uh, for this pagan festival called Halloween. Even in the pagan cultures, they believed that there was a realm right here close to the natural, but there's there's a thick barrier between uh, that realm of the dead and the natural. And so, yeah, on uh, Halloween, that veil is thin. We can pierce through that veil, the pagans believed, and, and we can touch and communicate with the dead. But that's paganism. And no doubt they interacted with the realm of uh, the spirit, but it was the realm of the satanic spirit, the realm of the enemy of God. Here, the realm of Almighty God opens up over Christ. And God, in a way, through that baptism and through that emptying, it's as though God opens up and wants to fill His Son. Let me talk to you just a little bit more about this open heaven description. In the Old Testament, we have the account in Genesis 28 where Jacob uh, lays his head on a rock and he has this dream. And he dreams there in Genesis 28 that heaven opens up and there is this ladder forming between Jacob and the heavenlies. Uh, there's a connection. There is a, a bond formed between the eternal spiritual supernatural realm and Jacob where he is sleeping on a rock. And it says there in Genesis 28, there were angels going up and coming down upon the this ladder. And so in that Old Testament dream, we see that it's God's desire to communicate from heaven into Jacob's life, his economy and, and his will and, and his way and his plan and his purposes. So God needed a ladder to be formed between Jacob and God. And of course, these angelic messengers, they communicate up and down. In a way, they bring God down to Jacob. In a way, they bring Jacob up to God. And there is this interaction. Well, Jesus prophesied in John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 51, that he actually is the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. And that he actually is that ladder. Christ is the one that connected heaven to earth and ministers God to us as, 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 as humans. But Christ is also the one who took humanity and brought us into God. And no longer are angels uh, traversing up and down that ladder, communicating from man to God and from God. Christ now is the one traversing up and down, so to speak, in, in the prophetic picture. He, he is the link. And he prophesied that to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 51. So you see that God wants to establish a link between heaven and earth. And I want to encourage you that you can expect heaven to open up over you if you take care of your consecration. It is your Father's good pleasure to bring you into His will. It is His good pleasure to enlighten you to see, 
Paul even prays that that we would see. Paul even says that Satan, in a way, is blinding the thoughts of the unbelievers lest we see, lest we can gaze into God's realm and we can touch God's heart. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that when our hearts turn to the Lord, the veil is removed and we can behold. And this is what happened here with Jesus' baptism. The realm of God opened up over the man, Jesus the Christ, which was his son. And there began to be this ladder established. And in a way, Jesus was able to come into God and see and hear and reckon according to God. And he could judge according to God. And and henceforth, in Jesus' ministry, he could speak with God as though one voice. And he could walk with his Father. And he could see into realms beyond the here and now. Why? Heaven was opened up. He was unveiled in his humanity. And Paul even would hint at that, that we as the believers can be unveiled. And in a way, we can come into the realm of God. I do not imply we um, fully understand God or see God. Yeah, we we do see through a glass dimly. And we, we prophesy in part and we know in part. If you have taken care of your consecration before God, then, oh man, it is God's pleasure to bring you into His heart and cause you to understand. And it's as though heaven has just opened over you. In Matthew's Gospel, there is an interesting account where Jesus gives to Peter and the disciples access to the heavenly realm. In Matthew 16, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal to you that I'm the Christ, but my Father who is in the heavens. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? It's as though heaven opened up over Peter and revelation came from above, not from a word on the street. It came from above. It's as though from God came the revelation into Peter. And of course, he confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ, the the son of the living God. Jesus speaks to him that, Upon this revelation, he's going to build his church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against this confession and this revelation. But in verse 19, Jesus speaks regarding the keys to the kingdom of the heavens. He says, Peter, I will give to you keys to the kingdom of the heavens. And whatever you bind on the earth shall have been bound in the heavens. And whatever you loose on this earth shall have been loosed in the heavens. What an amazing passage. In a way, he says to Peter, Peter, it's going to be on this earth exactly the way it is in heaven. Whatever you permit, God would have already permitted. 
your permission of things is going to be only because God has already permitted it. You're going to understand what God permits. You're going to understand what God restricts, and then you're going to bind it on this earth, loose it on this earth. You're going to restrict things on this earth. There's a big context here that's besides the point right now. But in a way, because there is now an openness and a ladder between you and God, God's will will be infused through your life and it will be manifested and and you will come up into God and see as he sees and, and you will enact it down in earth. It's all because of an open heaven. Beloved, in your consecration, anticipate God to begin to reveal himself, show you more of his heart, make his will known to you. You take care of your consecration. God will take care of communicating to you his heart's desire. Don't boss God around. Don't dictate God around. Just give God a chance to establish the ladder between him and you. And on that ladder, which is just Christ, he himself will begin to instruct you. Gospel writers go on to say that the Spirit of God descended like a dove upon the Lord Jesus and rested on Him, settled on Him. This is a picture, in a way, of Christ being anointed, just like a prophet and a priest and a king was anointed. Christ is the prophet of God. He is the king of the kingdom of God, and he is the priest who will minister God to the people and the people to God. And it's as though this mantle comes upon him that will empower him and equip him for ministry. But it is interesting that the Spirit is not an earthquake upon him. The Spirit is not a crown upon him. The Spirit is not fire upon him power upon him. The Spirit is an innocent, meek, tender, gentle dove. And that represents the nature of the Spirit in Christ. No doubt the Spirit was powerful in Christ. No doubt the Spirit was jealous in Christ. No doubt the Spirit was on fire in Christ. But here is the picture of the Spirit very much at ease upon Christ. The Spirit gentle upon Christ. The nature of God clothing Christ and preparing Him for His ministry. There's a couple of things about the dove that I want to point out. First of all, a dove represents peace. It's the peace of God that comes upon this man. There's a huge mission in front of Jesus, but there's no anxiety. There's peace. There's no striving. There's peace. He's about to be tempted by Satan, but it's though he will war with Satan from a place of rest, from a place of peace. I'm reminded also of Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 16, verse 20. He said that the God of peace will soon crush Satan. 
And Jesus is about to be released into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And he will encounter Satan and interact with Satan, not from a place of warfare and striving, but he would very much be at ease. And that rest, that peace would crush Satan, the way Paul speaks about it there in uh, Romans 16, verse 20. The dove also represents purity. Jesus would be the one with pure motives. And he would detect and discern quickly those with alternative motives. The dove also represents single vision. From the book of the Song of Solomon, we learn that Solomon says that my, my, my lover, my beloved, ha has dove's eyes. It's not eyes for everybody. It's not eyes for my lover today and then an affair with another lover tomorrow. It's singular vision. It's locked-in vision. It's dove's eyes, consecrated eyes. And it's as though the spirit of consecration comes upon Jesus. And if ever he had eyes for God, now it will intensify. We know that from a young age, Jesus was about his father's business. But here, he will be about his father's business in a very intensified way. And it's the spirit that comes upon him, not so that he can show off and jump off of temples and make a spectacular, sensational show of it all. He will be building the house of God. He will be hearing what his father has to say and he will speak only that. He will see where his father goes and he will follow suit. He, he will lock in on the heart of his father, perhaps unlike ever before. I marvel in our generation how we often want the baptism of the Spirit just for the gift of speaking in tongues. We want the baptism of the Spirit so we can shake, so we can be set ablaze with fire. We want the power of the Spirit so that we can, in a way, show off, maybe at times with ill mode of brag a bit. For us, the Holy Spirit often in this generation is, is more of a sensationalizing show, although we'll never state it as such. But here the Spirit comes upon this man, Jesus the Christ. And not only is the Spirit bringing the peace of God upon this man and the, the single vision upon this man, but a dove represents also gentleness, tenderness, kindness, meekness, just like a lamb. After all, Jesus was the Lamb of God. No wonder the spirit like a dove would settle on the lamb kind is attracted in a way to its own kind christ is this gentle good tender-hearted compassionate man and he will conduct his ministry under that mantle as a king he'll a couple of times make a whip as a prophet he will rebuke and he will say woe to you but by and large, most of his ministry will be conducted in a spirit of peace. He would say, come unto me and I will 
give you rest. He would not fight and war and revile in return when he is captured, when he is crucified. He won't resist. He will be like a dove, pure, at peace, single, visioned, and he will have that nature of just tenderness. I submit to you that perhaps there's so much in your life you would like to be more like God, and you're striving hard. Oh, I'm going to try this. Maybe I can try that. Take these steps. Avoid that. Incorporate this. Do this checklist. Then I'll have more peace. Then I will be more pure. Then I'll be more single-visioned. I submit to you that you cannot train yourself into the nature of God. It has to be bestowed upon you. And that's what happened at Christ's baptism. No doubt he was God already by way of his birth. But here God empowers him in the way of gentleness. I'm reminded of a restaurant back in South Africa that had a placemat where I worked at. And for some strange reason or another, there was this saying on the placemat that I have never forgotten. And it said simply, power is to pardon when you can totally destroy. When the spirit of power came upon Jesus, no doubt he cast out devils, put people in their place. But the real power of God was for him on the cross to say, I forgive you. When he had all the capability to obliterate. And that's the power the man of God and the woman of God really needs. It's not just the power to cast out devils, but the real nature of God to forgive even 70 times 7. You take care of your consecration and God will pour out that dove-like spirit upon you and clothe you to be a king and have authority where you need it. And Make you a prophet where you need to speak for God as needed. But more, make you a priest who can serve and love. And just like you lay down your life in baptism, the Spirit can even empower you to furthermore lay down your life and even forgive and turn the other cheek because you've got the nature of a dove, which is the nature of God in Christ, in Spirit, upon you. In the baptism of Jesus, we see the voice of God affirming the identity of Jesus also. Not only is there an open heaven where there is now interaction, not only is there a dove-like spirit for purity, for peace, for single vision, even for intimacy, but there's also the strong voice of God. Not the voice from his family, not the voice from the culture, not the voice of speculation and reason and logic, but God the Father's voice from the other realm. 
And that voice says, this is my beloved son. This is the one I love. This is the one I favor. This is the one that I am pleased with. Now, Jesus at that time had not done anything to really please the Father. He had not healed anybody. He had not really given a great teaching just yet. He had done no work of power, no restorative act in a person's life. Just how then can the Father be pleased with him? This is an issue of identity. This is where the father speaks directly to the identity of his son and not the accomplishments of his son. No doubt the father will also tell Jesus in time, good job, well done, good and faithful servant. But for now, he's just still a son. But in the laying down of Jesus, in the emptying of Jesus, There comes the validation from above, and it's something our generation desperately needs. We seek to be validated from one another. We seek to be validated from our culture. How many people like me? How many people approve of me? Um, We seek validation from our accomplishments and our accolades. And by and large, we live here in the 21st century with most of us in an identity crisis And we are desperate for somebody to just approve of us. Christ got his approval from his Father in the heavens. Where will you get your approval from? If your approval is from man, then it's going to be short-lived. Inasmuch as at one time the throngs approved of Jesus... The one minute and the next they shout crucify him. The approval of man is very short-lived. And plus the approval of man does not really validate your identity. It It doesn't know you. Except your father who is in the heavens. He knows you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every breath that you take. He's the one that has your name written in the book of life and inscribed upon the palm of his hand. Like, God knows you. And the only voice, really, that you need to speak into your identity is the voice of God. And here in this baptism account, Jesus is emptying himself. He's humbling himself. And the heavens open up. The Spirit settles upon him. And God then affirms him. And it's upon that affirmation, that building up of God within his being, that that voice, that word of God that speaks directly to his identity, you are my son. I love you. My pleasure is with you. It's, It's from that word in a way that Christ's identity is stabilized. And it's upon that stable identity that he can go into the desert. And Satan can harass him 
and try to trick him and tempt him. And this is where he can stand in that trial. He does not need favor from man. He does not need a movement from man. He's not accountable to man. He doesn't answer the call of... of He stands upon the approval of his Father. If God is okay with me, that's all that matters to me. And Christ can go forth. And when they question him, who do you think you are? Are you the Son of God? That's blasphemy. He can stand. He can endure. And he can journey through that crucible. Even when the Father turns his face away from him. And he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? I believe he was able to bear under that cross because he knew he was loved of his father. And even if his father slayed him, yet his father will then again resurrect him. Where do you get your validation from? Who, Whose voice is paramount within your being? Whose verdict and validation sticks to your soul? Is it the voice and validation of this culture? Is it the voice of God? And then how will you get the voice of God? I submit to you again. Take care of your consecration. Come to the waters of baptism. Humble yourself and see how God will speak in to you. Paul would write to the ecclesia, the church body in Ephesus. And in chapter 1, he would say that you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. You are chosen in him. You are beloved in him. You are holy in him. And in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, he would say, you are accepted in the beloved. And it's as though Paul is uttering again the voice of the Father. I am well pleased with you. You don't even have to do anything. I am just a-okay with you. And that is the voice that every young man so desperately wants his father to speak over him. And it hardly ever happens. It's the... It's the validation every lady needs, that she's beautiful and she's A-OK. And so they seek it from boyfriends and from the culture. It's just not enough. Beloved, I encourage you. The only person that can speak to your identity and restore your soul and affirm who you really are is Almighty God. Give yourselves fully to Him. Submit yourselves fully to Him. Come to the Jordan. Come to the place of crossing over. Really turn your back on the old. Don't be like Lot's wife and look back to the old. It'll freeze you up. Come across. Come across the Jordan. 
cross this threshold with humility and repentance. Come to the waters of baptism. Come to the end of yourself and watch what God will do if He will not open heaven uh, over you, if He will not pour out His Spirit upon you, if He will not speak to you personally, uniquely, tenderly, specifically. Beloved, Jesus ministered from those three responses. Where will you draw your strength for ministry from if it's not an open heaven, if it's not the Spirit resting upon you, and if it's not the voice of God saying to you, I love you in my favor, is upon you.